had been 12 years since the Olympic flame had last been lit and the world was irrevocably changed. After the death, destruction and division which had been unleashed, some even questioned the wisdom of hosting a Games which pitched nation against nation once again. But more voices still called out for a celebration of sport, which would bring together and repair broken bonds of international fraternity. And so 4,104 men and women from 59 nations descended onto the still bomb-scarred city of London for this, the 14th Olympiad. in the recording room at the end of the last Olympopod I dropped hints that we would have a guest and we weren't sure if we would have a guest and we said if we don't have a guest we're just one of us is just gonna have to put on a voice and pretend that we have a guest Chris do we have a guest how about we let our guests speak for themselves (laughs) do we have a guest Oliver Dingley (laughs) hello everybody how are you all <laughs> yeah, we probably you will have to either edit in that all of us speaking at once, so that we can definitely uh, say that it's not one of us pretending to be Oliver Dingley, a Commonwealth medalist, Olympic and world finalist, Irish one meter and three meter springboard record holder. Welcome, Ollie. <laughs> Are you real? I am real, and thank you for having me on today. It's a pleasure, and I, I think it's particularly fitting because as we will get into in the course of this podcast. You, back in 2016, were the first Irish diver to compete in the Olympics since 1948. So we have, we're connecting the the past, present and future of Irish diving in the Olympics in this podcast. And I've got plenty of questions about your Olympic experience that I'm going to throw in at some point as well, because, you know, when we have an Olympian on, it's nice to actually get your perspective of it. Did you know, though, Oliver, that both Ruth and I were there in the stadium for your Olympic debut in Rio? I didn't know that at the time. And when I was competing, I remember looking up into the stands in this vast arena. I mean, it was pretty packed out. Uh, say there's several thousand people there in the stands. One person jumped out to me, especially, and that's literally because they were jumping about absolutely crazily. And I, and I remember kind of looking up, I actually first noticed Ruth on the big gigantic screen in the arena in slow motion, jumping up and down. And so after one of my dives, I looked up, I was, I was trying to figure out where this was in the arena. And I eventually, after about the fifth round, I figured out that, yeah, somebody was jumping up and down absolutely crazily with the tricolours and it turned out to be Roof here. Yeah. <laughs> I take I take sport supporting very seriously. Oh, it looked serious. <laughs> it looked <very> serious. <laughs> but actually, so I was at the final as well and originally I handed tickets for it and I was like, oh, okay, this is my last day. I have to go get a ticket for it. And we had really good seats for um, the first round. We were... Well, we sneaked in into really good seats for the first round. (laughs) We didn't originally have particularly good seats, but we did spot an opportunity and it was in the end, like directly facing you from when you were diving. If you were looking to the right, we would have been... Oh, you were very side on. I noticed from all the jumping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was not our original seats, but we did manage to, in classic Rio 2016 fashion, sneak our way into a better position. 
Yeah, well, so I repeated this for um, the final, but like the final was pretty much sold out. So I had some bad tickets, but I said, okay, well, we've done it once before. I can try just like blag my way into the A seats and uh, hopefully no one will notice. So I saw three empty seats and I was like, okay, just go into one of them, say nothing. And then these two girls arrived up and I was like, oh, sorry, these are seats. And they said, oh, well, we actually have a spare seat. I was like, oh, Okay, brilliant. And they go, wait, were you just at the gymnastics? And I said, yeah, 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 I was. And they said, oh my God, we saw you at the gymnastics with an Irish flag jumping up and down. And we were like, oh my God, we have an extra ticket to the diving. We need to find that girl and bring her. And uh, <laughs> I was like, and now you gave me the seat. And they were like, yeah, we gave you the seat. It was brilliant. Oh, small world. Thank you for coming to watch the diving as well. <laughs> it was it was a monumental moment for Irish sport and you know we don't we don't get a huge amount of happy Olympic stories and it was just a nice story for all of us to be involved with so thank you for giving us that oh, no, happiness thank you, you. Uh, diving is one of those cool sports where I think it always gets a lot of people watching because it's just so dramatic as in it's uh, very elegant in the air it's got that danger factor around it if it goes wrong it'll end up in YouTube for all eternity on a bloopers tape and if it goes right, it just looks absolutely amazing. And yeah, it can make for quite good competitions, I think. What is the worst dive you've ever had? You just mentioned you just you just you just mentioned the bloopers, and I was like, hmm, is that is that speaking from experience? Phone, actually, and I'll show you over now. We're chatting over Zoom, and uh, you guys will be able to see, but I, I can send it in and you can always post it on Twitter. Uh a real fail of mine, uh, which was in 2014, and I was in Canada and it really, really was a bad one because I ended up having to go see the doctor afterwards. So what happened was, uh, my ego was very, very bruised after this one. Uh, my legs, my legs gave way on takeoff, and uh, and I was doing a reverse three and a half somersault. So you you jump off the board three and a half times, you jump forwards, spin backwards, and you kick out, and then ideally go through the water with no splash. Now I didn't get the jump right because my legs gave way, and I was in the air. I didn't have a clue where I was, and I, and I thought, you know what? Now seems about the right time to come out. And I, I'll give you a step-by-step -step guide. I don't know if you can see that on the screen. It starts off with me. That's that's me holding my manly areas because I did a very, very bad belly flop. I don't know if oh, you can yes. see it. Oh, here we go. Yeah. So I take off and then I go, oh, my legs give way. I'm in the air. I'm spinning. I have no idea what I was. I committed to the end and I uh, unfortunately didn't land on my head. I was about 90, de 90 degrees uh, too short. Oh no, I was a whole somersault and a half too short because I landed <laughs> totally flat on my stomach. And uh, yeah, that was absolutely terrible. And uh, you know what? Unfortunately, I've had mm. other moments like that as well. And it happens to every diver. Uh, the Olympic champion from London 2012 in the semi-finals in Rio, he got a failed dive because he mm. did a belly flop. And uh, you know, it's one of those sports where it's a fraction of a second's mistake it can cost you. And that's the whole competition over as well. And uh, Unfortunately, it's also got that pain factor in there as well. So yeah, it can hurt you a little bit as well. I'm not mm. selling it very well, am I? <laughs> <laughs> it is an extreme sport. I think so. I mean, it feels extreme when you're there at 7 a.m. in the morning about to have to dive in and you just look over the end of the diving board and you're just like, oh, that's, that's going to hurt. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fun one. It's such an individual sport and you obviously support each other a lot. I've heard in the past that the divers that, um, you know, your your only support is supporting each other. And um, But in a situation like that, after a fail or a fall like that, 
maybe you might have gone to the hospital straight away or if you're hanging out in the dressing room at the next competition or the next time is it something that people bring up or is it like no we're just going to let him kind of get over this in his own time because it's a mentally scarring thing i can imagine yeah it was a bit of a legendary one that one so if people still like <laughs> to bring it up uh yeah lo- lots of jokes about my nuts as well uh, from that one uh, it was uh yeah it was an absolute brutal one and it's, it's really really awkward when you come out the water because everyone goes silent and i remember getting my very very first ever failed dive at a big international competition and it's happened to all of us it was a reverse three and a half again it's, it's the same dive again you get a bit of a pattern here and, uh, <laughs> and, I, and i took off with only half my feet on the board and still went for the dive and i remember landing in the water luckily in a bomb position but I remember poking my head above the water and just walking away. And the silence is deafening. And all I could hear was one person in the background, just their clap, just echoing like. <laughs> and it just echoed around this whole place. And it was like the walk of shame. But now, yeah, everybody has a good laugh about them after, after it's mm. happened. And everybody feels for everyone as well, because mm. it's happened to everyone. And it's a sport that, like I said, is, is over so fast those fraction of a second's mistakes. Everyone's been in that situation and also nobody envies anyone being in that situation, a competitor or not. It's uh, it's not the nicest. And uh, so, yeah, it's a very, very close-knit community is the diving world. I don't think at a swimming event, you'd get about a thousand swimmers on poolside. Was at a diving competition, there's altogether maybe 130 athletes and everybody knows everyone. Everybody chats to everyone. And in between each dive as well, there's a lot of standing around time. So you just chat to each other. And yeah, it's a really close-knit community. So everyone rallies for each other, everyone as well. Well, I want to, I want to get some more insights uh, from your own career and, and the games as we go on. But I think we should dive into the, the 48 games themselves. And as uh, we've talked about in the last couple of podcasts, we had the 36 games, which were Hitler's games, uh, the Nazi Olympics. And then we talked a little bit about the war years World War II is over, and very shortly after that, London made a a bid to take the Games in 1948, believing that uh, in the two years they'd have to actually prepare it and put it together, that London and the UK would be back to normal again. That wasn't quite the case, Ruth, was it? It was hard to get over. London was not completely rebuilt. And every other country was in the same boat. So yeah, it, 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 they, they did it for, what was it, £750,000? Yeah, in that time, which I think with inflation equates to something like £3 million now. So an incredibly small budget. And they ended up actually uh, making money out of it in the end, which is incredibly good going. Something that I hadn't thought of before was because, um, of course, rationing was still going on. Uh, well into the 50s. So um, all the athletes were granted, I think, category A status, which meant that they got something like 6,000 calories a day. One of the best stories I heard was that they had a um, reception for 300 of the athletes um, in Buckingham Palace. And a British gymnast, uh, George Whedon, said, "Um, it was nothing special, really. We shook hands with some royalty. Then there was some tea and buns, but no champagne. I feel his pain. (laughs) Yeah, well, look, it was (laughs) incredibly difficult times. Um, uh, As you said, the athletes were given this uh, Category A rations, which were usually held for people working in in heavy labor. So in mining or dock workers, uh, there was one great cheat or a hack 
which some athletes managed to commit to. And one in particular, Sylvia Cheeseman, who was a British runner, said that uh, while she was preparing for the 200 meters, it was very hard to get a hold of meat, but there was unrationed whale meat. And that is what she tucked into. She said, it was absolutely horrible, but I was so intent on getting my protein that I ate it. And now a lot of the countries coming to visit uh, were in similar situations, maybe not some uh, as bad as the UK, but everyone brought along some things with them. For example, the Dutch brought a lot of fruit with them. The Danes brought over 100,000 eggs. And the French, who can guess what the French brought? Lots of champagne. Not quite. Uh. Along somewhat similar lines, though. Ollie, have you got a guess? What do the French really love? I'm going to say some type of wine. Originally, I was going to say cheese, but wine probably sounds a bit more fun. Yeah, well, they did bring they did bring train loads of wine with them. So, <laughs> so everyone everyone made some kind of effort to uh, to bring something extra to the games and to share with each other um, as they made the most of the situation. And I think that is a key aspect as we go through this podcast is that yeah the the situation was far from ideal, but for the most part, everyone was just so delighted to actually have the games go ahead and and there was one athlete who would very much have his time to shine in 1952 four years later Emil Zatopek who was a Czech runner and he had a great quote about the the whole experience and he said after all these dark days the bombing the killing the starvation the revival of the Olympics was if the sun had come out I went into the Olympic Village and suddenly there were no frontiers, no more barriers, just people meeting together. It was wonderfully warm. Men and women who had just lost five years of their life were back again. So I think that's a nice uh, nice thing that captured the spirit of these games for, for the athletes coming back and uh, something to bear in mind, particularly after the last couple of podcasts we've had. All right, so Oliver, I'm sure that you've done a bit of uh, homework, a bit of research uh, in the build-up to this podcast. When you were looking at the 48 games, what athlete or what event really stood out to you most? Now, there was a few actually. Hockey with the Indian team, I thought was pretty fantastic. But I'll keep it in-house and stay with diving for this one. The winner, okay. Sammy Lee. I was just It was just a huge idol of mine. And I remember actually the first time I ever saw Sammy Lee it was absolutely amazing. Uh, and just watching him back, I was watching him back uh, before I got on the chat here. Diving is just, it's fantastic. And it really kind of sets many of the techniques and trends that you'd see today. He was kind of a pioneer in that. So it was, it was really, really kind of, I've never seen that footage actually that, that you sent through. So absolutely fantastic to see him in action. And yeah, when I got to actually see him back in probably about 2010, uh, that was a pretty cool moment as well. Oh, see, so you met him in, in person. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was, uh, yeah, really, really cool. That's interesting that you hadn't seen the, the footage before. And I'm really intrigued to get your view on it because for the uninitiated, it seemed like, particularly on the men's side, that it was quite advanced. I don't know what the regulations were for women's diving, but it seemed like they were all forced to do basically the same kind of dive. But um, on the men's side, there was maybe a bit more variation, or perhaps that's just the kind of uh, footage they were showing. But what did you make of the the techniques and the actual dives themselves? Oh, I thought that flexibility could do a bit of work, all of them, actually, <laughs> compared to nowadays diving. Uh, and their entries as well, very, very splashy, I thought. But having said that, they do some crazy stuff that you wouldn't get any divers doing today. 
I saw one person do a one-step reverse one-and-a-half somersault straight from the 10-meter. I can't think of a single person who I've ever met who would actually give that a go. And that was a common dive that they used to compete there. They used to be a lot more straight shapes, and the dives weren't... There wasn't as many somersaults, but the, the skills, like the twists in there, were very, very technical. And so you wouldn't get so much get the somersaults in there, but the, the forms and the shapes, that how they would make those easier dives... You wouldn't get that today. So it's a really interesting contrast to to what you'd see both in the men's and women's. Okay. Oh, interesting. I remember seeing there was a lot of, it's hard to say close calls uh, on their way down, but they really left no margin for error in terms of the actual space they gave themselves from leaving the board and the entry into the water. Yeah. Much like today's diving, a lot of them did look like they just threw and held on for their lives. And that's a <laughs> similar type of thing I have today in my diving, front four and a half somersaults. You throw and hold on for your life and half uh, the time hope it goes okay. And yeah, the, the diving actually was very, very technical back then. And uh, back in 1948 and then, then from then onwards, it, it really, really kind of expanded at a, at a rapid rate. What did you know of Eddie Heron, the previous Irish diver, the, the man who after him, there was a 68 year wait until you uh, represented Ireland at this sport again? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, kind of crazy to, to think. Uh, but Eddie has a very, very strong lasting legacy. And he grew up in Black Rock area. And so he would have dived in the Black Rock Baths. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen any footage, but there used to be a diving pool there in the Black Rock Baths. Uh, now, I've seen that footage. And it's absolutely amazing. Now, it looks absolutely freezing, but <laughs> it looks great fun and a bit different to what you'd get today in the Black Rock uh, area. Uh, and he has a, a legacy that's kind of it's uh, transcended beyond his time uh, and into diving today. And there's actually a plaque uh, commemorating Eddie uh, down in Blackrock Baths. He has a story where basically he just seemed like a bit of an entertainer, a showman. And and he dived to actually a very, very old age. So he would have dived beyond his competitive years into show diving in the local area. And he was a bit of a legend in the area as well. And even speaking to diving coaches gr growing up, for example, uh, when I used to live in the UK, they would all know of Eddie Heron because some of them would have dived with Eddie in shows in Dublin and and around uh, different places. So, yeah, he had a really, really strong legacy, especially in Ireland and especially within the aquatics community. So, yeah, there's a real privilege to be the next person after him stood there on a diving board at the Olympic Games. It's a good, strong name, too, for a diver. It is. Heron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Heron just sounds like it yeah. just sounds elegant, doesn't it? Yeah. Just I was, the leap. Yeah, I was thinking though afterwards, do herons even dive? I'm not sure. Or do they just kind of like stick their neck in? So I'm not sure. Anyway, that's Heron did. <laughs> yeah, I should make jump and fly with style. So mm. Eddie, similar to them, did the same probably. But he was at these games, the 1948 games, but he actually had to withdraw from them. Yeah, very contentious games, uh, uh, especially from uh, a lot of athletes. I think there was not just aquatics involved, cycling as well on, from the Irish team were pulled out. And Eddie competed in the preliminary rounds and then was pulled out after that. So, uh, yeah, a very, very contentious time. And unfortunately, a sad way, but but also uh, to, to end it. But uh, but I, from my, the stories I've heard about Eddie Heron is a... He was a man of principle as well. He seems like a really, really nice guy and one a lot of people speak very fondly of. Yeah. So just for the listeners, the reason he withdrew was because two Northern Irish swimmers weren't allowed to compete um, under the Irish flag. Um, and so 
he all the entire the entire swimming and diving teams pulled out of the nineteen forty eight games. The gold medalist, though, for the three meter springboard, Miller Anderson. Do you know anything about him? I do not know anything about Miller Anderson. Actually, I'm yeah. guessing he's American because I think the Americans dominated back then. They did, yeah. Well, so he competed in his first national championship in 1942. But then during the war, he had to parachute out of his plane and he landed horrifically um, and had one of his legs mangled. So he had to have a silver plate inserted above the knee and had to completely relearn how to dive, which he obviously did. Uh, did it very well, apparently, as well. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, he actually won. He won silver. Sorry, he didn't win gold. He won silver at the three metre springboard. And spoiler alert, he won silver in Helsinki in 1952. You mentioned before about London having to be rebuilt and uh, they did their best to patch up what they could and make do with the old facilities they had. And the pool they used actually had a crack in it due to a German mine which had exploded and they had to keep refilling the pool as the uh, Olympics went on because uh, there there was a constant drainage happening there. Not exactly the same, but it reminds me a little bit of something that happened in Rio. And I want to know, did you, Oliver Dingley, have a chance to dive into the green pool? Because I can't remember. Yeah, it went through different stages. It started off kind of as like a a lime green. Then it went to electric green, which is probably the the most most nicest to dive into, before it then went to swampy green. Uh, And luckily, by the time I was competing, it was back to blue. Uh, but you were just talking then about refilling the pool. Now, I remember that in, in the diving arena, they also had synchronized swimming. And on the other side of the pool, outside the building, there was, uh, so the diving pool and well, the whole arena was raised up. And now I don't know what side you guys came in from, but to one of the sides of the pool, there was a, a training pool uh, for the synchronized swimmers. The day before the synchronized swimming started, their pool started going green as well. Now, it's one thing our pool going green, but synchronized swimming for the camera angles, Basically, the whole sport is underwater. So they emptied the whole pool pretty much the night before the Olympics were going to start for synchronized swimming and through yes. pipes just dangling out just over the walls of this arena uh, into the swimming pool, just pumped all the water out of that all the way into the other pool. And it was just chaotic. And my coach was always going to make me dive into it. I didn't have an excuse. As far as everyone was concerned, I had to train in that. I was, I was quite worried about ear infections. Uh, now, luckily, I didn't. Now, having said that, though, it had its perks because blue sky and blue water, see outdoor diving, is very hard to see where you're going. So especially when it got to electric green, it was it was actually gave you something to spot as you were spinning around. Oh. But I still to this day have no idea how it happened, why it happened. I've heard different rumors. It started off with the idea that the dye from one of the banners had dripped into the pools because uh you know, uh, they have around the venues, they have basically the Olympic logos and they kind mm. of decorate all the, the wall space with those. And, and some of them did uh, kind of did go into the diving pool. But then I did hear that they'd used a chemical that had killed the chlorine and then algae started to grow, hence why it started to go green. And uh, yeah, extremely strange. I've never seen it before. And it was, yeah, just absolutely bizarre. Really, 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 really strange. Okay, but so now you're saying, though, you actually quite liked going into the green because it's uh, different. Well, I liked, it. To the I liked sky. seeing where I was going. I didn't yeah. like being inside, it, kind of in under the water, 
not being able to kind of you'd open your eyes for a fraction of a second and you couldn't even see your hand in front of you so it was kind of disorientating well, I was going to ask, would you would you propose that we just uh, dye the diving pools a different colour every event? Oh, you know, what? I, I figured that should be a nice addition, personally. Uh, a different colour, pretty funky. It makes it more visually spectacular, I guess. Uh, but yeah, extremely strange. It was just a very, very strange thing. And I've never, ever heard of it ever happening before. Oh, look, we'll put we'll put it on our list of when we approach the IOC with a whole new um, <laughs> a whole new schedule. We'll also say, oh, by the way, uh, Oliver Dingley asks, can you dye all the water? <laughs> you want a green lagoon? Yeah, pretty much like Rio pool. Now I think we can't talk about 1948 without talking about arguably the greatest athlete of the entire games and uh, that's fanny blankers coon from the netherlands also known by many as the flying housewife because <laughs> go on get get your rage of that out of that name no it's just like i mean there's several things about this but including that um one journalist said that she was too old to run like it wasn't oh. even that she was married but she was too old she was 30 <laughs> Uh, but she said, she said that like after that, when she read that article saying, oh, she's too old to run, she was like, okay, well, fine. I'm going to go and I'm going to win absolutely everything. And she did. Yeah, well, she she absolutely did. And what I really like about her story and, and a few other athletes at these games was that there were a group of athletes who had competed in 1936 and then lost perhaps their peak uh, competing years due to the war and somehow managed to continue throughout that time and then come out the other side and compete 12 years later now fanny was one of those athletes she had competed at the 36 olympics in berlin just aged 18 uh, she was in the high jump and the four by 100 meters relay didn't win any medals there but only a couple of years later had started to really peak and won her first international medals and set her first world record by 1938 however she'd have to wait 10 whole years to actually get her next shot at the olympics when she did she took it with both hands uh, despite being a mother and as you said journalists questioning her at the age of 30 a lot of people in the netherlands saying that she should be staying at home looking after her family and not competing she went with the support of her coach and husband jan blankers and was the absolute star of these games she's an absolute legend there is some nice footage of her events in the official film she was absolutely dominant in the 100 meters first of all breaking 12 seconds in that one and i think it's it's good to mention as well when we look at these times particularly as as time goes on and these records start to be broken in wembley at the time they were still using a cinder track and this was a cinder track which was donated from people's houses so cinders were taken from people's houses and used to create a track over the greyhound track at wembley and so it wasn't exactly the most ideal conditions but she was still running incredible times won the 80 meter hurdles as well and in the 200 meters she absolutely stormed past everyone winning by i think it's fair to say eight nine ten meters she won the four by 100 meter relay as well with the dutch team taking the final leg in third place and storming into first she also had the world record for the high jump and for the long jump 
But because, and I, I don't know if it's 100% true, but we've spoken about this before, that female athletes were not allowed to compete in more than three individual events. Now, some suggested that she didn't want to compete in all of them. Others suggest that uh, female athletes were not allowed to compete in them, but she had two more world records in two other events. And if she had been able to replicate that, she would have won two more gold medals. So four golds. She was the best in six events. An amazing athlete, despite being a 30-year-old housewife. But the person who did win the high jump, um, Alice Coachman, right? Yeah. Yeah, and she was the first uh, black woman to win an Olympic gold. And she was born and grew up in Jim Crow era Georgia. And because of this, you know, she had huge numbers of challenges, just even accessing uh, training facilities or being able to go to competitions. Um, she, but she was spotted in high school and given coaching. And she, as well as high jump, she took national titles in the 50 metre dash, 100 metre dash, uh, 400 metre relay. And she was also a very talented basketball player too. And um, the sports writer, Eric Williams, now I know the Flying Housewife had the same issues, but Eric Williams says that had she been allowed to compete in the cancelled Olympics of 1940 and 1944, uh, we'd be probably talking as her as the number one female athlete of all time. She, she had she had competition. She had competition with the flying housewife. But she was the Team USA's only female medalist in the track and field. And she was welcomed home as a hero, given a reception by President Truman. But then when she went back to Georgia, there was also receptions, but completely segregated and the mayors wouldn't shake her hand. She oh. got a Coca-Cola deal, though. <laughs> she, she became a spokesperson for Coca-Cola. Overall? Good or bad? She was able to monetize her position, which a lot, as we've seen, a lot of athletes weren't able to do. And she became a, a very famous coach in her own right. So I would say that she was quite happy with her, all of her achievements against really quite insurmountable odds. Mm. So I think it's a good story. When I was looking up events, I, I was drawn to the arts. Because uh, oh. I think uh, London was the last time I had arts. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was one dude who got a silver and bronze in the same event, which I thought was quite cool. <laughs> so, Ollie, we love the arts. And one thing that we really love is when there's no gold or sometimes no silver or sometimes they just decide not to, like nobody is good enough. But I do really like that. that um, uh, he was a Swiss guy, Alex Dickelman, and uh, he won silver for world championship for cycling poster and bronze for world championship for ice hockey poster um, in the applied arts and crafts division. But no gold. He wasn't good enough for gold. Good enough for silver and bronze, but absolutely no gold medal here. Would that bug you more, just being given a silver and a bronze, but no mm. gold? Or that's a yeah. I, I dare say he'd be fairly annoyed with that. Can you imagine going to um, you know, a competition and just all the judges are saying, no, all of these dives, they were quite good, but they weren't first place good. So this person gets silver, and yeah, we're just we're keeping the gold to ourselves. This guy, uh, it's funny because we think we all were all our attention was caught by the same guy in all the arts competitions. We all had uh, Alex Walter Diggleman. He did win a gold in 1936 in Berlin. So that is another bit of a, a mind fuck. It's like. In 1936, you were good enough to win gold. This time, you're still better than everyone else, but only a silver and a bronze. 
So over those 12 years, have you just gotten a bit worse? But he was also the only ever, okay, Olympian. Yeah, I was about to say athlete. Uh, yeah, he's the only ever Olympian to win two medals in the same event at the same time. And it's unlikely that it would ever happen again, unless we bring back the arts, which I am all for because it seemed like just utter drama. In the music category, no gold or silver um, for the vocals. Dramatic works. There were entries, but none of them were good. So uh, none, none of that. Uh, something I liked was that there was just some events which we have no idea what they were for. There were just there were just people entered in them, and there's no record of why they were entered into them. So there was one unknown event that had four Canadians in it, four writers, and nobody won anything, and we don't know what they did or why, or in in what way did they do it. We don't know. They were writers. They wrote something. Do you know for the sculpture event, if they had to create a sculpture in like a certain time limit, were they all kind of like is it was it like Bake Off, where they're all there in a room? <laughs> And then they say, ready, go. And you have to create, an, a, a, I think you had to create like a, or something sporty, but a sporty mm. sculpture. Do you reckon that's how they did that? I don't, but that's such a great idea for <laughs> when we bring back art. Speed uh, that, like, sculpturing. I'd be all for that. Well, so would I. That'd be great. That that definitely brings the the sporty aspect back to it then. Because, yeah, I think, I think these were all things, whether the sculptures or architecture or paintings were all done at some point and then presented as their work but if it had to be done in i don't know an hour or a day or a couple of days or throughout the entire olympics that that does add a bit of drama to it but i also liked that there was a medal and plaque section so you could make medals and then get a gold medal for your best gold medal although there was no gold medal given to in the medal section there was just silver to oscar teed's eight sport plaques and bronze to Edwin Greenauer for prize rowing trophy. Mm-hmm. They sound very stingy, the judges. <laughs> Not many goals given out. So we've speculated about this before because there's absolutely no record whatsoever about the judging process, um, except for once when, was it 1912? That Pierre de Coubertin, uh, he was the main judge and he uh, put in an entry and he won gold. <laughs> <laughs> I think the arts is great. I love a good um, town planning uh, as well. And and that did get gold, silver and bronze. So they were up for that. Um, but yeah, no, we've speculated before. Is it just that like, is it a point system and just some people just didn't, like if, if nobody got enough points, they were just like, no, it's, it's, it's just a failure of an event. But also, I mean, if you do it away from the competition, you could have had help with that as well. So... Yeah, it's, it's very, very hard. I mean, diving, that's what I do. It's, it is a judged on preference, I guess, as well. It, you, it's not from A to B time. You are basically judged on what the judge thinks is visually pleasing. So the, judge, the judge's scores do sometimes vary as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I wonder. I mean, that, that, that was actually, that was very contentious in the early days of diving at the Olympics as well. So in, in the turn of the the 20th century, the, the Germans didn't want any kind of fancy diving, as it was called at the beginning of the... German efficiency. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I think it's better the, the way it is nowadays. But I mean, it has, for the most part, I guess, the, the judging system 
has to be accepted in diving or are there any times that you've just been completely pissed off with bad call i know it's multiple judges but have you ever felt like someone in particular or on a certain day that people are against you uh, the worst one is when you think you've done a good dive and you're kind of congratulating yourself as you're swimming back up and you break the water like the surface of the water kind of with a big smile on your face and then you just hear like four four and a half three three four <laughs> and a half. You're like no uh, but yeah, there's uh, so three scores count. So they take the middle scores. So I think you maybe have like six or seven judges. Oh, it might be mm. four or one of them. And uh, they basically then take the middle scores. They add them up. And then they times up by the degree of difficulty. Uh, but I do think in diving, the judges, judges can be swayed, uh, especially by crowd noise. If you're competing in a at a home event for somebody, the crowd might be more enthusiastic and that kind of makes the judges more enthusiastic. And then these judges have to make a decision within a split second as well. And they can't change the scores. So sometimes in the spur of the moment, they get a bit carried away. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, I, I've never been annoyed with any judges, more annoyed with myself for messing up the dive. Sometimes sometimes the benefit of a doubt has been on my side as well. And I've come out mm. with better scores than what I expected. But so if the crowds can influence the scores, are you suggesting that I played a part in you getting to uh, the, the, the finals? Because the judge is like, oh, Jesus, look at that Irish person up there. OK, just, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Add an extra couple on there. <laughs> well, if they did, thank you very much. <laughs> I can't believe you're trying to claim all this glory. <laughs> non-athlete uh, on this episode i just want something okay <laughs> okay fair fair while while you may not have been screwed over by judges you were screwed over in 2012 i don't know if you want to get into this but at least from what i read that in the the selection trials for london 2012 despite being well you finished second in the trials right and then the person who finished third was selected ahead of you yeah so so a few years ago i, I was representing great britain and uh, I'd, I'd always had this idea of representing Ireland, this this dream that I'd always had ever since I was quite young. Growing up, I would have been, my first sporting memory was the 2002 Football World Cup. Mm. And uh, I grew up in a town called Harrogate in North Yorkshire in the UK. And there was a guy actually representing Ireland at the World Cup from the same town as me, a guy called Andy O'Brien. And I was just always obsessed with, well, soccer for starters, but this whole Irish identity and it never, unfortunately, it never really materialized until until 2014, mm-hmm. uh, when the opportunity came around. Now, they always had a program in Ireland, and, there was, and, and a good one at that. Uh, but then the, the opportunity arose, and, uh, and I grabbed it with both hands. But before that, yeah, I was on the British system. Uh, and uh, back in 2012, I would have finished second. But, you know, people have paid the money to, uh, to make those decisions, those hard decisions, because, I mean, for... For anybody in in high level sport, it's not just a four year cycle; it's a, it's a whole lifetime of you know mm. support networks around you, from family, friends, schools helping out, coaches, and ultimately some people aren't going to get selected, and you're going to be on the wrong side of those decisions. Sometimes, sometimes you're going to be on the right side of those decisions, but just much like judging, it all comes down to preference as well. And on that occasion, I wasn't chosen, but uh, you know, four years later, after I mean, I, I was lucky enough to. Uh, to get to rep, to get be given that opportunity to, to represent Ireland, Ireland, and uh, and I qualified for the games, and uh, yeah, dream come true, and to get to do it representing Ireland as well was always a, a fantasy, but then for that to become a reality was was absolutely amazing, and uh, you know, then to help one of the, the 
the great things about moving to Ireland was trying to help move the sport forwards and uh, and get more people actively involved in diving. So to be a part of that was really, really cool. And uh, yeah, so I never got to go to 2012. But having said that, I had an amazing experience in 2016. So then uh, since Chris asked you that, flipping it back, Chris, did you always grow up dreaming to be on the Team GB ah. <laughs> at London 2012? You tried to get the passport. Should I? Yeah, I mean, I, I can. I haven't actually spoken about this, uh, but I can do that. Seeing as Oliver's given his his 2012 story, I have a, a far less, I'd say, a far less devastating uh, one in the end because I didn't get as close as Ollie in that sense. But in 20, so I played handball for Ireland in my entire adult life. But there was a stage in late 2011 where we had played against England. I had a particularly good game, scored 11 goals against them. And shortly after that, uh, the fact that I was born in London had come to their attention. And they wondered if I had wished to uh, to join them uh, for an international tournament just after Christmas. Spoke to everyone I was connected with, teammates, family, friends. And at the end of the day, it was like, look, the Olympics is eight months away. You're never going to get a chance to compete in the Olympics for Ireland. So maybe uh, you should give it a go with the with uh, Team GB. And so I had agreed to go in the camp with them. But then dark forces were at play, it seemed, because for me, who never, ever gets ill, came down with a ridiculously heavy bout of tonsillitis on Christmas Day, the day before I was supposed to fly out to a tournament in Latvia with the British team, was stuck at home, not allowed to fly, and uh, missed that opportunity and never got a call back again. So I don't know if I was poisoned by my grandmother or some someone had someone had it in their mind so that I wasn't going to go. You did have a knee injury very soon after, but I was just yeah. going to say, we've already now heard of Miller Anderson, who had a devastating knee injury <laughs> and then went on to win two silver medals. So Chris, don't, yeah. you know, you know, okay, maybe not uh, 2021, but let's set our sights on uh, 24. Let's find you an event Look. and get you in there. Unfortunately, I'm now 31, which means I'm past Fanny Blankers Coon's age, which means I'm way too old. <laughs> Are you not fancying some synchronized diving, maybe? Oh, I, I don't know. Don't you have to be quite... Um, yeah, well, flexible, you mentioned, is one thing. I think I've lost a lot of flexibility. Uh, <laughs> three years nearly to No problem. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but yeah, you heard actually, it here first, folks. Yeah. <laughs> The bright, the bright side, the bright side of uh, then rupturing my ACL just before the Olympics actually were going to take place, uh, competing for Ireland, was that I managed to uh, when I was at London going to the events as a fan, I was hopping around in crutches, which meant I got to skip all of the queues in London. So I got to go in the uh, the special assistant queues and got some extra uh, nice tickets every now and then. So you know. Swings and roundabouts. Yeah, right? it was all worth getting that ACL injury just for that. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I'm delighted that we can now announce that um, Paris 24, there is going to be a double uh, with Dingley O'Reilly. It's going to be great. You're not looking too confident there. No, let's, uh, let's see. I'll, I'll, I'll go down to the, uh, the local swimming hall here in Gothenburg and, and give it a go. Actually, now that I've mentioned it, God, this is a... We're really getting off... Um, off the topics here but it is to do with art because 
one of the bronze medal winners in the architecture was Swedish. And the architecture plan they put forward that won bronze was Valhalla uh, swimming pool in Gothenburg which uh, was built then after the, uh, the man who won the bronze for it uh, died, unfortunately, but it did actually come to fruition and is now a, a very popular swimming hall here in Gothenburg. So yeah, another connection to the, the 48 Olympics. Uh, but I'm not sure if diving is the sport for me. I would love to give it a go, but I, I, I don't think I have the balls for it, to be honest. <laughs> I really don't. Particularly after your first story, which you just—it's one of those sports where you, you stand there and you count yourself down, and you're standing there and you're just going one, two, three, go. Okay, I'm gone. Yeah, one, two, three, go. Okay. One, two, screw it, go. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Chris, would you be more kind of into the early 20th century? Just who can do the biggest splash? That would be kind of your. I mean, yeah, I think, I, think that's, I think that's more suited to my body type as well. Could throw all 95 kilos of me into uh, into the pool and make a big splash. That's me. Shall we, shall we go back to the sport now? <laughs> uh, so now that both uh, Oliver and I have shared our, our sad London 2012 stories, let's go to some happy stories. And... I want to go back to the to the track and field just for a moment because there was a nice uh, story from Dorothy Tyler, who was a high jumper. We spoke about the the high jump earlier and the gold medal winner, but the woman who jumped the same height as her but finished in silver was Dorothy Tyler, and she actually had competed in Berlin twelve years previous at the age of sixteen and won a silver in the high jump. And uh, she was making the only woman to win Olympic medals before and after the war. She was actually the only woman to win an individual Olympic medal in athletics at that championship. And she did all this with the old school uh, scissors kick high jump. And she had, um, I, I listened to a an interview with her on the BBC World Service, which was quite interesting. Uh, and she was talking about uh, the rationing, the not so ideal condition she had to live in and because there was no olympic village at these games they were using army barracks for the men uh, using various houses and anything they could really get their hands on for the women she was saying that although at the stadium itself all of the attention was on her and that high jump final because it was completely packed and they were the last event or in the stadium as soon as the olympics were over she had absolutely no attention whatsoever because her father had no interest for whatever reason. Her mother was too busy looking after the kids uh, and people she worked with and the and her friends and family just uh, kind of got on with life. So, you know, although people were really happy that the Olympics were taking place and they really bought into it, it seemed, in London at the time, uh, I guess it's fair to say that as soon as the Olympics finished that... Um, People had other things to worry about. But nevertheless, she said that during that time and when she was in the arena itself, it was a, a magnificent uh, moment. And I think it's uh, yeah, really cool to look at, at her, someone who managed to, to hold on to the old uh, scissors kick high jump style and uh, still win a, a second silver medal. I don't understand. Why is this? Why is it? Why is a scissors kick? Okay, so you know, uh, in high jump nowadays, they use what is commonly known as the Fosbury flop. So you're yeah. you're jumping backwards into it. Well, okay. even in 1948, people quite literally would just jump 
in the air and kick their legs over the bar. Is that not a lot harder? It's a lot, lot harder, yes. I wonder if, uh, I mean, until the Fosby flop came in, if uh, maybe a dive forward roll could have been a good technique. That, that would be my first thought. I really like, I really like, like in these early games, although now we're in 948, we can no longer really call them early, when like one person just comes up with an obviously much better way of doing something and everyone else is like, oh, yeah, like when, like uh, with the hurdles and someone was like, oh, you don't have to stop every time you come to a hurdle. You can just <laughs> jump <laughs> as you're running. And then everyone else is like, oh, yeah, actually that would be much faster. Or when uh, the first person ever crouched down before a race and then everyone's like, hey, how is that person much faster than us? I'm, I'm, yeah. sure, of a, I'm sure of a Swiss painter who got the silver and bronze probably wouldn't have appreciated anyone telling him how he could have maybe got the gold medal. <laughs> Have you heard of acrylic paint? <laughs> well, who did you mention before about the, the mangled leg, the diver? Miller Anderson. Miller Anderson. Mm. That, believe it or not, is not the most gruesome injury that somebody managed to come back from to win a medal at these games. We've had some pretty bad and horrendous injuries uh, in the past, but go on. Try this one on for size. Karoli Takac from Hungary. Uh, he was the first ever shooter to win two Olympic gold medals in the 25-meter rapid-fire pistol event. He won both with his left hand after his right hand was blown off. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. Let me say it again. <laughs> so, well, it was, I say blown off. Let's just um, say, during, during army training in 1938, his right hand was... Badly injured when a faulty grenade exploded, uh, which which meant that he could no longer uh, shoot with his his good right hand, and so he decided he would uh, actually learn how to use his left. He was determined to continue his shooting career, so he practiced in secret. And then, a, only one year later, in 1939, he surprised everyone by winning the Hungarian national championship. Uh, ten years after the injury, 1948, he was coming up against the favorite for the competition, who was an Argentine, Carlos Valiente. He was the reigning world champion. Valiente had uh, supposedly approached Takac before the event and asked him, what is he doing in London? Because he had heard about the accident. Takac replied that he was just there to learn. He would go on then to set a world record and win the gold medal. Valiente later congratulated him, saying... I think you've learned enough. <laughs> Takac went on then to win a second gold medal at the same event four years later in Helsinki. And after that, Valiente went back to him again saying, I think you've learned more than enough now. It's time to teach me. Something that I've just thought of. Remember in the Paris Peace Games, which were... 1919? 1919, yeah. yeah. And one of the events was grenade throwing. And I said... You know, was it live or not? Because that would add a little bit of risk to the sport. And I was laughed down. I'm just thinking, like, you know, live grenades, anyone? I, I, I still don't think it's a good idea. I think, if anything, that proves it's not a good idea. <laughs> I don't think it's a good idea, but the IOC sometimes haven't made very good decisions, so it could possibly be a grenade, a live one. Uh, yeah. Obviously, there were a lot of athletes who had been severely wounded uh, and survived 
the Second World War. And it was actually at this time that the beginning of the Paralympic movement came about. And on the very first day of the Olympics, while the opening ceremony was taking place, up the road at the Stoke Mandeville Hospital, which was created for uh, paralyzed ex-servicemen, they had what would be the beginning of the Paralympic movement because they had brought in a doctor called Dr. Ludwig Gutmann, who was a, a spinal surgeon. He was created the hospital uh, at Stoke Mandeville and was meant to uh, rehabilitate uh, ex-servicemen through recreational sport. He had the idea then to actually get these servicemen to be active and to, to play whatever sports. And so while the opening ceremony took place, he organized the very first competition for wheelchair athletes, which he named the Stoke Mandeville Games. And it involved 16 injured servicemen and women who took part in an archery event. And then four years later, Dutch ex-servicemen joined the movement, turned into an international games. And then eight years after that, in 1960, we had the very first Paralympic Games. So it was also a, a big milestone in the development of what is nowadays uh, a huge part and I think a, a wonderful part of the Olympics. It, it's, it, they have now decided to push it on at the same time as the Olympics, have they? Like the Commonwealth Games. Uh, no, well, the, no, the Paralympics are always the, it's, I think it's what, two weeks after the Olympic Games yeah, ends, but, right? Paralympics. Mm. Yeah. But like, no, the way now with the Commonwealth Games, they are on at the same time. Oh, right. Okay, I'm so not just, sure. It, it just seems like a good idea. Okay. It's always an interesting following the, the Paralympic Games and it had a huge amount of attention uh, at London 2012 as well. I think Channel 4, who were who had the, the rights to it, did a fantastic job of uh, promoting it and making it. Uh, very much its own entity. I wonder, would having the the Paralympic events at the same time as the Olympics take away from it a little bit? I'm not sure. Well, I think the whole. I think I think the point is that because it is afterwards, a lot of people have already left the city. Mm. So I mean, in one way, it becomes more local, um, and more local people get to see sports. But there is that aspect of that. It is it becomes the secondary show. Whereas if you're putting them interspersed, uh, so like in the track and field in the Commonwealth Games, there'll be one race and then there'll be a, a power race and you just watch them all because it's all mm. sport and you're just, it's all entertaining as sport is. I don't know. I've never thought about it as whether it be it would be better to have it all interlinked or not. We'll put it on our list for when we go mm. into talks with the IOC. Our, our, our list is getting longer. <laughs> <laughs> Just even just from this um, recording, we've got we've got the dying of the water for Ollie. We've got uh, putting in the Paralympics uh, for me and Chris. If you want to put in something, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll we'll consider it. Oh, I think arts has to be back in the table, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Speed yeah. art. That's speed that's art. it. Speed art. Speed art. Yeah, very good suggestion. And right, can you hear my future event that I want in the Olympics. Oh, I think I think it's we're getting close to that at this stage. We are. <laughs> I've got one other story I'd like to, to throw in as well. Have you got anything else you want to, to throw in, Ollie? You know, as, as, a, as an athlete getting to, to represent Ireland, it's, uh, and in the sport of diving, 1948 holds a lot of significance. And uh, yeah, I just feel like I've been very, very lucky to be, you know, associated with that part of history as well, due to being the, the next one in line after Eddie Heron to, to compete. So it's an Olympic Games that 
you know, if I ever look back through the archives, I always look back quite fondly on trying to do my research and looking up about it. I've always been very obsessed, like a lot of athletes are with the Olympic Games and 1948 always stood out to me. Uh, so, you know, thank you very much for having me on to talk about this. We still have two more stories, though. So hold your horses. <laughs> We are, Chris, run through your story. Okay. Run through your story because we also then have to ask Ollie why he's kicking out. I mean, it's funny you say run through the story because it's the marathon. First of all, while watching the official film, which by the way, sadly is only about an hour and a half long, not quite the almost four hour extravaganza of Nazi propaganda from 1936, nevertheless was very, very good. And I love the music that was used in the uh, for the marathon because it really built it from a kind of, oh, nice Sunday jog in the park into a real Hitchcock thriller. And the the thriller really did happen in the last lap because coming into the stadium, we had a Belgian runner called Etienne Gailly. He came in in first place, but he was visibly shook. There was no chance in hell he was going to, uh, well, it looked like he wasn't going to finish for a while. He was really struggling to properly run. And eventually... Delfo Cabrera from Argentina came charging into the stadium and he was looking a lot healthier. It didn't take him too long to get past Gaeli and take the lead. He'd go on to win gold, but then Tom Richards from Great Britain also came into the stadium. And I think it was only in the final bend he managed to get past Gaeli to get into silver. Now, the Belgian was in real trouble at this stage. He had lost gold. He'd lost silver. He'd stopped at one point and was barely managing to walk uh, before he was kind of pushed on. I'm not sure if it was a coach or, or somebody basically told him to get his arse going again because there was a South African, uh, Johannes Coleman, who had just entered the arena as well. So all of a sudden, being in first place with just over a lap to go, he could have lost his goal, but somehow he managed to stumble over the line and was uh, carried out on a stretcher. Really uh, showed the brutality of uh, of the marathon, as we've spoken about a lot over the years. But I love the way that the, the official film set it up as well with the score. Can I talk about basketball? Let's talk about basketball. <laughs> okay. Um, no. So, I mean, I only discovered this story an hour before we'd started to record. But basketball, right. Played outdoors in its first appearance in Berlin, in uh, but due to rain, the final it like essentially took place in a bog. You couldn't dribble the ball. Um, it was decided nineteen forty eight put it indoors. Uh, so it was held in Harringay Arena. Nobody in London really seemed to know what basketball was, um, and the opening match saw twenty spectators. Um, twenty three countries took part. Nine from America, eight from Europe, five from Asia, and one from Africa. The USA won, beating France in the gold medal match 65-21. But we're not interested in that. We're interested in the team who came 23rd, Ireland. And basically, hey, because London was so close, a lot of Irish federations thought, you know, it's it's easy enough to go over, get the ferry. Uh, we might as well put in a team. The ABAI, so the Amateur Basketball Association of Ireland, uh, had been founded in 1945, which introduced the sport to in a small way to the Irish public, because before then it was essentially only played in the army. 
And they sort of just threw in a couple of their own rules along the way. Uh, They were using a 1936 regulation book, which had been significantly updated and changed, but that news hadn't reached Ireland. So they were still using old rules. They also played it as a full contact sport. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then the ball they used was heavy and big, described as a cross between a medicine ball and a GAA football. It sounds like they were playing field handball. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not really sure what they were doing. Anyway, the Irish Minister for Defence gave permission for 22 soldiers to be taken off regular duty and sent to Dublin for intensive training. Now, so this is so this is 1948. Do you want to take a guess at what the intensive training was? How long do you think it was? A weekend. I, I'm gonna. I was gonna say 48 hours. Okay. Do you know what you? I, I shouldn't have put it out there. It was three days. So they were actually a lot more. They they, they took it a lot more serious than you were giving them uh, credit for. A long weekend. A long weekend. Exactly. <laughs> Their coach, Commandant McCormick, wasn't particularly familiar with basketball, uh, but that does seem to be one of the least of their worries. Um, oh. Thirteen soldiers were selected to represent Ireland, and one civilian accountant. Harry Boland. And for the Irish listeners who are saying, what? That Harry Boland? No, that Harry Boland is still dead. This one is his nephew. Right. So they didn't go to the opening ceremony because they didn't have money for a uniform. They were lent by the army green singlets and khaki pants. And like, we're told when you come back, you have to wash these and give them back to us. Like, these are not for keeps. <laughs> Things started off pretty badly. Their driver got lost on the way to their opening match against Mexico. So they arrived 20 minutes late and weren't permitted any warm up time. Uh, in the official report from the Irish Olympic Council, they described it as having been an incident that had a very upsetting effect from which the team never fully recovered. Mexico won 71-9. <laughs> they were said to have played much better against Iran, losing that 49-22. Against Cuba, it was said they were executing with fair success moves that were not in their repertoire when the competition started. So they were improving, but they had a particularly demoralising time against France and getting beaten then 73-14. It was said at the time, in technique and teamwork, they were still a long way behind and quite their weakest point was their marksmanship and the inability to score on the run cost them several chances. I got all of this information from an article which appeared a number of years ago in History Ireland and it concludes with these words. It was impossible to extract any positives from this venture. (laughs) When Harry Boland was asked about his Olympic experience uh, many years later, he said, I was studying to be a chartered accountant. At the time, they were called article clerks. I was articled into my brother's firm, as was Charles Hawhey, and we went to set up a business together afterwards. I had to take my three weeks holidays to go to the Olympics. It was the first time I'd have ever been out of Ireland. Of course, we were completely outclassed in all our games. Which, for a question about your Olympics experience doesn't seem to uh, contain much information about your Olympic experience. Oh God! So well done to the Irish team. And you know, they years later they seem to have very nice reunions. I think they all like you know they they understood <laughs> they understood the significance of Ireland going uh, to play basketball in London. I love that. That's so good. So good. So on that note, um, we have mentioned speed art, but Ollie, we asked you to take something out of the current. Olympic schedule. Probably some swimming. I always feel there's just far too much swimming. <laughs> Wait, that's that's fair. That's fair. 
we, we've been we've been hammering the track and field schedule with our guests over some of the previous podcasts. So yeah, we can we can get rid of um, some events or something. Well, they have added in more swimming events over the last couple of years, and I mean, wow, there's so many swimming events; it never ends throughout the two weeks. So uh, yeah, I, I think they could maybe limit the, the number of swimming events because you get a lot of competitors in each event as well. So they can enter. I mean, like eight events, nine, eight, seven, six events. Whereas some sports, you're very limited to just one, for example. Which do you hate most? Which would you take out? Uh, <laughs> I remember going to the national championships, uh, uh, the swimming one in Dublin. And I was, uh, you know, one of my housemates was competing in it. And all I knew was that he did the 1500 meters. So I turned up all excited. Oh, okay. About 15 minutes later, they're still swimming back and forth. It never ended. So probably the 1500 meter swimming event. He did quite well though. So it was, it was a good end. Just uh, took a long time to get there. I also think the um, 50 meters is too short. Yeah. The 50 meters as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like, are they even swimming? You can't really do much in that time. I mean, there's nothing really to see apart from, I mean, you can't even tell who's finished first until the results come up either. So it's uh, yeah, a it, bit of a tricky one. The 50 metres is essentially just horizontal diving. Yeah, less stylish, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of swimming, diving rivalry going in there. Uh, no, uh, yeah, the 50 metres, yeah, I see what you mean there as well. But anyway, well, we've kicked out the 1500. We've kicked out. Yeah, yeah, we'll get rid of the 1500. Yeah, yeah. And what do you want in? Oh, well, I had two thoughts. The first one was cliff diving, which I thought would be quite cool. Uh, and they are trying to get it into Paris 2024 as a, uh, a demonstration sport. A demonstration sport. Since that's already, you know, it's got a chance of being in the Olympics, I thought I would go a bit further afield. And I was brainstorming and it took me back to the first lockdown when I went on, like many people, a YouTube spiral. And then I then ended up watching about three hours of marble racing. Now, uh, the Olympics, right, is so much about skill and technique and technologies come into it i want a sport which is just down to luck who anybody can win and i think marble racing it's got the fans it's got millions of views people go wild for it and i think that would capture people's you know imaginations for one evening maybe but worth it ollie it's not the most ridiculous thing someone has suggested on this podcast that's good to know because uh, i didn't think it was pretty ridiculous but yeah no i, I think marble racing it's dramatic it is Oh, it's fantastic. I recommend it to any listeners out there. If you've got, you know, even five minutes spare, you'll end up having about half an hour spare because you just, you won't be able to stop watching it. We'll put it on the list and we'll get it to the IOC. Yeah, and I just I'll... think, and just not being able to know who's going to win. So, you know, a random country, uh, Zimbabwe, for example, come away with an Olympic gold medal. And, you know, it's all just by somebody just plopping down a marble and letting it run. I, I think that's a fantastic thing, all down to chance. Or dare we say Chris could get a gold medal. There we go, yeah. yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, during the first lockdown, Ruth was sending me screenshots of the Marble Racing League and the backstories of some of the teams. So you're preaching to the choir there because Ruth is also a dedicated Marble Racing it's fan. It's called Marble One. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Do, you ha- do you have a team that you support? Uh, no, no, I, I mean... Like I said, it, it was during the first lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> I then adopted oh, yeah, me too. which then just kind of took my time up. So, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, the first lockdown was a strange lockdown. Mm. Yes, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't have a team or anything weird like that. Tell us, tell us, <laughs> tell us your team, Ruth. Go on. Do you know what? To be honest, this was um, first lockdown stuff as well. It, I, but I believe mine are called the Green Ducks. Let me just check. Yeah, yeah, my team's the Green Ducks. They didn't have a great season this year, but um, they, they debuted at the Marble Olympics in uh, 2019. That was their first season. They came second and no one ever saw that coming, that the Green Ducks coming in second. And if coronavirus does stop the Olympics, that is one event that can go on. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. What is your confidence that Tokyo 2021 will take place? Yeah, uh, it's weird having it in an odd year. I always think of the Olympics as like an even year. Uh, That aside, it will be fantastic if it goes ahead. Uh, You know, I was very, very lucky to experience Rio 2016. I had the most amazing time and so many people don't get to go to the Olympics for whatever reason. And to not to be able to go to the Olympics because of this, you know, it'll be really, really heartbreaking. But at the same time, there's also some things that that are bigger than sport. And uh, it's quite sad that we're in this position in the first place. And, you know, fingers crossed that things start to improve and they do go ahead. And as an athlete trying to prepare for it, you just really just take it one week at a time. I still have to qualify, which is in April in Japan. So I'm going to be traveling to Japan in April, hopefully. And as it stands, the qualifiers are still going ahead, but you just don't know at the moment. So it's a yeah tricky one for, for all athletes, but it's all about just staying positive and you know methodical with your with your thinking and just taking it one week at a time and hopefully we'll be there at 2021 tell us about your own podcast oh my own podcast yeah for anybody who wants to hear me waffle on for an hour at a time it's called life in a bubble and uh, so when i was younger i used to just tell everyone how well i, I would tell people now how just terrible i was at school and uh, Five o'clock each day, I'd go to diving and that was my bubble. So we kind of came up with this concept uh, where we'd have a guest on and we've had guests from all different walks of life, uh, from sportsmen and women to we've had TV producers, film producers, photographer. Uh, we've had loads of different people on and uh, they basically bring in free photos of important moments in their life. And I'll bring in free photos that I'd like to talk about. And we really, we talk about why that photo to them is so important to them. Now it's, it's not very visual, but it, I think it works like that because it makes the, the listener use their own imagination a bit more. So we'll talk about those that photo, and then we talk about the journey behind that photo. So it could be a, a two-month journey in their life. It could be a six-year journey, but it could be positive. It could have been a negative memory. Uh, but we'll talk about that journey and why that photo at the end means so much to them. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely downloading that straight away. It sounds brilliant. I can't believe I haven't already been listening to it. All, all very amateurish. Uh, it's been really, really fun, especially during lockdown and because of a college course I do as well. It's just nice to have that outlet and, you know, listening to other people's stories puts a lot of things into perspective as well. I listened to your one with David Gillick and David Gillick was, I was a huge fan of his growing up uh, and his European indoor gold medal. So uh, that was a really cool uh, chat with him because he's yeah multi-talented as well. I think you, you captured that very nicely. He is some man. He can cook like a king. He is, uh, uh, yeah, he's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, an amazing athlete, a fantastic cook. He won Celebrity MasterChef. Yeah, he uh, really knows his stuff and fantastic guest. And it's all really about the guests that make the podcast happen and their stories. And I'm only there to just kind of 
well, listen to it and chat about the, those stories. But it's all it all comes down to them. And luckily, we've had fantastic guests on so far. Oliver Dingley fishing for compliments at the end of the podcast that he's a guest on. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the guests and thank you oliver for joining us you have been a wonderful guest oh, thank you very much for yeah. uh, oliver it's been a, an absolute pleasure to get your perspective on on your own olympic experience and insights in 1948 as well uh, thanks a lot for taking a long old time to chat with us uh, today and uh, good luck with your training for tokyo let's hope it all goes ahead thank you very much thank you for having me on And uh, we'll be back with Helsinki in 1952. The good old days continue. Any predictions for 52, Ruth? No, I've not looked into it. Um, (laughs) That that, that diver with the wonky D gets a silver, I've heard. Um, (laughs) That's my prediction. Brilliant. Well, we'll (laughs) we'll talk to you again very soon. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Goodbye. Bye.